0: Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast from Emerge. I'm your host, for the most part, Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge. You'll actually be hearing Daniel Fagella, Emerge CEO and Head of Research, conducting today's podcast. But Daniel is actually moving away from hosting these programs, and you'll be hearing from me regularly on this program, week to week, in short order. Today's guest is Mark London. Chief Risk Officer for Abound, a financial services startup formerly known as Finturn, which specializes in data-based approaches to consumer lending. You'll be hearing from him and Daniel on today's podcast talking about the collision between data and consumer loans, namely that there's a big difference when it comes to data between measuring risk for a $25,000 loan and that sort of customer, and also Versus a $5 loan. This means different approaches for legacy institutions like banks that have this data and smaller, newer, more tech savvy financial services organizations. Some might call them startups. Later on, the two move into what the deluge of data not only means for consumer lending, but similarities we're seeing in the insurance space where new opportunities are being identified between legacy and startup financial institutions and markets that just a few years ago we'd never even think to discuss. Discuss. Without further ado, here's their conversation.
1: So, Mark, thank you for being with us. Thank you. I know today we're covering the topic of consumer loans or kind of near-prime lending. There's going to be a lot to dive into in terms of where data and AI can sort of unlock more value here, very niche topic that we haven't yet covered on the show. But I want to cover the theme itself first, consumer lending. When you think about how or how you describe consumer lending, I guess, to business people, for some of the folks that might not be familiar, that would be helpful. And then kind of how the process works today, that would be a great place to kick off
2: if you don't mind. Sure, sure, no problem. So I guess, I guess there's a couple of aspects to the problem that we're trying to solve. So today, most lending decisions are made on credit scores. And credit scores have been around for a long time, and on average, they're they're right. Uh, on average, they're sort of they predict risk, but they're also quite unfair for quite large subsets of the population. So, particular people who've had a problem in the past, maybe things are much better now. Maybe they missed a few payments a few years ago. Maybe things are back on track, but their credit score still still reflects the issues they had in the past. And credit scores are quite yeah. Noisy, quite unreliable. That effectively pushes quite a lot of the population out of the market for getting a reasonably priced loan. Like, so the other part of the problem is that the big banks are not really interested in making writing small loans just because the money that they make from them relative to the cost of providing them is, is, is small. So yeah. if you wanted to get a, a, if you had a good credit score and you wanted to borrow Twenty-five thousand pounds from High Street bank, no, no problem. You can get a good rate from a bank. But if you wanted to borrow five thousand pounds, you won't get a good rate from the bank. And you're, if especially if you've got a, a blemish on your credit score, basically you're forced to go to a payday lender, who will charge yeah, you extortionate okay. amounts. Okay, okay.
1: And just for clarity's sake here, so this is useful context. You, you know, you guys are talking about kind of these smaller loans, maybe. Five thousand pounds, something in that ballpark. Typically, I, I think sort of maybe what people associate very small loans with is is actually handling kind of the essential things like making the rent payment or whatever the case may be. But it probably could be very many different things. Where does most of the demand for this smaller lending come from? You know, it's it's clear that maybe the big banks don't don't want to touch it too much, but it's useful to maybe get a sense of why this whole market exists. You guys are pretty close to it. How, how do you explain that?
2: Well, many, so many times it's young people who need a deposit for rent. Often it's people who have found themselves kind of dipping into credit cards, later realizing that it's quite penal from an interest perspective and then wanting to amorti- you know, consolidate and amortize that credit card debt paid off through a loan. Otherwise, they're stuck with 40% interest on the card. Okay. Uh, some people are buying new cars. You know, yeah. so say so debt consolidation. You know, things like rent, new cars. These are all very popular loan purposes for it.
1: Got it. Okay, cool. So it's useful to get an understanding of some of some of what these kind of loans would be used for. And it sounds like, from what you're saying, the big banks they're just not able to touch it as much. And I would presume this is because maybe the overhead for doing so is is relatively heavy for the mark. In other words, the paperwork that they would need, as you had maybe put it to get 25 grand with a loan is maybe the same amount of heavy lifting assessing etc as it would be for 5 grand except maybe the risk profile is very different it might be much higher i'm not exactly sure obviously the profit that they could make from it is much lower so is it is it sort of the the process yeah. costs that make this prohibitive for big banks mark
2: i think that's definitely a, a big part of it because the banks are heavily reliant on on credit scores and they 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 it would cost them a lot to, to adapt their processes to be able to use the kind of data that we're using, which is why they're very slow to adopt banking informed decisions. The other thing I get I think is that the regulatory backdrop is that there's a very high risk of writing smaller loans to riskier customers that maybe could later demonstrate that they couldn't afford the loan. And our kind of financial regulator our ombudsman here would 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 ultimately say well you know that 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 loan was unfairly given and therefore it's not and void so there's a lot of risk huh. it's it's partly processing costs and the the, the ability of big organisations to to change but also the kind of regulatory
1: got it okay so for multiple reasons there often these smaller loans are just not going to be something that bigger banks are going to want to deal with and people are going to be forced to slap stuff onto credit cards or go with more exorbitant payday lending when really ideally they they should have other options. I guess this brings us to where data and AI can kind of fit the bill to potentially help make some of this credit more accessible. Certainly there's a market here. Uh, I imagine there's a pretty big global market for this. So the business case checks out. And yeah, certainly 40% on credit cards. That's not exactly something you want to carry into everything that you spend money on or, or spend credit on. Talk a little bit about where data and AI kind of fit in to get rid of some of
2: these barriers? Sure, so in the UK and, and, and across Europe, there's a regulatory uh, essentially means that customers can make their bank transaction data available for purposes that suit them, so for, for example, for purposes of getting a loan. So what that enables us to do is is to download all of the transaction data customer for the last couple of years. Really understand in detail their affordability, as well as looking at the credit score. So we can say, actually, this person is 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 earning money. Maybe their they, their pay is trending up over time. Maybe they get bonuses. We can see they pay their rent on time. They pay all their bills. We can see they don't have any specific vulnerabilities, like bad gambling habits or or crypto addictions, which somehow. <laughs> We can see that they have, you know, a certain, you know, the lifestyle factors. There's all sorts of things that you can tell about a customer when you can really look at every bit of their spending, to to, to better qualify the credit score. And what that means is that if you look at the sort of the full spectrum of credit scores, at one end you've got the prime, at the other end you've got the subprime. We think that there's a large part of that middle part of the distribution that we call near prime, which is actually really better described as hidden prime, because once their credit uh. scores may not be fantastic and compatible with a prime customer, when you look at the details of the data, you can actually determine which ones are actually the really good ones.
1: Got it. So there's maybe, a, like you're saying, there probably are some folks who just don't, don't want to lend money to. There's others who it's somewhat of an obvious choice. I guess what you're getting at is that clarifying that gray area and being able to coax out through the gray, kind of what is the black and the white within that gray, is where the business opportunity lies. In other words, there's a lot of folks kind of on the edge there, and if we can pluck the folks that are our good business, there's a lot more business to be won.
2: Absolutely, and you know, and, and conversely, there are some people with fantastic credit scores, but very unfortunate, you know, they you know, signal that they they lost the job or they they have got a gambling problem. So it kind of works both ways. But you, it, it's, yeah. not, it's not so, sort of completely trivial to to do that. I mean. There's a lot of, you know, typically a customer will present with a 3,000, 4,000 transactions. You know, they're not necessarily always well classified. So, you know, you'll see the descriptions, amounts and dates. But there's a lot of analysis that needs to happen to be able to synthesize that data, ultimately to determine whether this customer has good affordability or or, or not.
1: Yeah, and... and There's so many factors there. I mean, we can really dive in on kind of how this operates. I mean, it sounds like the data that you do have access to is basically transaction data. Uh, this This is sort of what you have. Okay, got it. Because we could imagine that there are, and of course, things get much more complex when we do this, but we could imagine that there are a great many additional factors that might come into the mix. I could be wrong. Maybe I am. But I would presume that maybe for, for some kind of lending products, you know, something like criminal history would factor in. It sounds like that's not something that you guys sort of take into account or get access to. It's just purely the the payment data.
2: We we do fraud checks as well, like most lenders do. So if there are particular types of financial crime that could be relevant for us, might test that, you know, maybe the customer's taking the loan out with no intention of repaying it. Then, uh, you know, we're very interested in that, of course. But we don't specifically take any other kind of legal history into
1: account. Okay. Got it. I mean, you know, and of course there's pros and cons to doing so. I mean, we can imagine maybe some people would say it's unfair. I don't, whatever, however you base your loan, somebody's going to call it unfair. Right. Which is why all the lending vendors just emphasize, they say fairness in every third sentence or something. And we we have to just
2: kind of endure that in our podcast. Go ahead. Yeah. So that's, that's very much definitely. Fairness and affordability and vulnerability are huge topics. So we often see it through the lens of willingness to pay and ability to pay. Oh, yeah. And ability to pay means you know this, you know definitely no no kind of signs of vulnerability, definitely strong affordability, and that's a kind of hard minimum for us. Even if theoretically the the risk is zero, we won't lend to anybody unless we can be you know 100% confidence that they have, they can afford the loan. That's a must have. But then the sort of willingness side is a little more nuanced because, of course, people can, you know, apply who really have the means, but for whatever reason, they you don't. Know, but there's a whole kind of data science around, you know, how we combine signals that we see in, in the transaction data with signals we see in history to determine what the likelihood of them, whilst being able to pay for whatever reason, actually paying. Got it. Okay, cool. And yeah, we, we could imagine,
1: I mean, you know, if somebody, has three DUIs in the last like six months that may or may not be indicative of their one of those two things. However, I could understand that if we open up that floodgate, then there's so many other data sources. Why don't we look at the weather? Why don't we look at it? And so it, it does It does get more complicated, but it sounds like for your guys' intents and purposes, looking at the, the payment data unto itself is, is important. I would imagine it's, as you had said, it's non-trivial to be able to figure out what what does this transaction mean? You know, we have to figure out who was the vendor here, what was the product here potentially. And I imagine that is actually rather complicated. What is done to kind of crack that nut of figuring out what's being bought and what are the risk profiles of these different purchase activities? I mean, how do you even get started on that, that problem?
2: Uh, there's a lot of different steps. So, you know, you, you start off with just a sort of pool of transactions with descriptions, dates, amounts. Then there's a step of, you know, mapping those to, to vendors and spending and income types. Then there's a process of kind of fuzzy grouping. So here's a kind of the, I guess the first bit of AI as well. Sometimes transactions are basically the same thing over time, but their transaction descriptions vary slightly. So the system needs to be able to group them together. Why do they need to be grouped together? Well, if you want to look at how stable they are over time, you need to determine, you know, is, is this a core expense? This just discretionary spending that they don't have to make every month, mm. or is this actually like it's like a core living expense, like rent or, or bills? Okay. Okay. So we we have to kind of ultimately pass all types of income and expenditure based on how whether they're really kind of core or whether they're discretionary. So that, that's kind of the first base, if, if, if you like. And then later on, sort of the more advanced stages of our engine. Help them pick out other features that may be relevant to either willingness or ability to pay some of those are quite obvious like you alluded to some of them like to, to people and, you know are they paying fines are they do they have debt management payments they have certain yeah. unresolved uh, arrears um, do they have payment holidays on existing loans we can detect a lot of these sort of obvious signals but then we also look at the overall kind of payment Income and expenditure patterns, like how quickly do they spend their disposable income? Do they have a very good couple of days? You know, and then a very kind of, a, you know, beans on toast the remainder of the month. These things yeah, are yeah, quite, yeah. quite predictive. There's a lot of lifestyle factors that turn out to be quite predictive. People have a Spotify subscription. Do they have families? Yeah. Do they have Disney Plus? No. So there's all of these things that you can see in the day.
1: Fascinating. I mean, I, I really think this space is, is there's just so much opportunity here, as you had said, to kind of coax out that gray and determine where the black and the white is or the likely black and the white is in terms of risk. And, you know, you're bringing up some really interesting points. And I, I know from speaking to so many other lenders in the auto lending space and other domains, they're all, you know, and, and I'm not going to ask for anybody's secret sauce here on this call, but they're, they're all quite trepidatious, I guess, about talking about what kind of factors lead to risk because there's always these potentials that you could be accused of you know, discrimination, like all well, the, the people who subscribe to Disney plus are rich or their skin is a certain color. And that means that, you know, if you're calling that a good signal, you're really calling that skin color a good signal, right? And and now, by the way, like, I'm not sitting here and saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying people are going to yell that stuff no matter what you do. So you could do 5,000 permutations of what you're doing. And somebody is going to yell at you with exactly the claims that I just made. Like, how I guess do you have to think about that sort of side of the mix, because I know there's a regulatory wing to all of this stuff. Maybe the rules are simpler in the UK than they are in the US, but it does feel like with a lot of the US vendors we've talked to, it's really an eggshell walk in terms of what they can use as a signal for risk or not for risk. How do you guys have to navigate that?
2: Yeah, I mean, when we, we, we think it's very important to be able to explain the decisions that we make. That's part of our value proposition is that we don't just sort of say computer says no we're able to really kind of understand the decisions that we make. So that's point one. And I guess in our explaining of model outcomes where, where decisions are taken automatically, we are careful to ensure that we're not discriminating on something that is you know, sensitive in that regard. And as you say, there can be hidden correlations and, and so on. So we have a process that ensures that they're not creeping in through the back door. So uh, that is something that uh, you know the UK um, is, is is also about, something that any lenders that have auto decisioning do need to monitor carefully.
1: Yeah, honestly, it feels like an, a little bit of an unfair place for lending vendors because just the the hurled the hurled accusations can be so numerous in this domain. Some of them maybe have validity. I'm not saying they don't, but some of them are pretty clearly can just be said of literally any way that you make decisions. But I guess the point here that you were getting to, which I thought was very important, was you can look at what are kind of recurring expenses, what are the patterns and kind of volatility and how much spending. You mentioned beans on toast. I Mm -hmm. only know what that means because (laughs) at the hotel hotel I'm staying in, uh, I tried it for breakfast and I regretted it. No, it wasn't all that bad, actually. It was okay. It's a little weird to have beans in the morning, but you know what? It it wasn't all that bad. I, I, I respect it. But yeah, so you're looking at that volatility, yeah. you know, looking at particular costs that might be associated with higher or lower risks, mm-hmm. and then being able to use all those things as, as kind of proxies.
2: Just one sort of, sort of overarching point, I guess, to contextualize the last couple of questions is that this is not like brute force, big data that we're talking about here. And for us, it was very important that, you know, anyone involved in risk modeling is actually doing you know, manual underwriting as well, that they really kind of understand in their bones what these risk factors really mean. So I would think of it sort of as a pure kind of box, kind of big data decision-making where, you know, these kind of inappropriate correlations can kind of emerge. Actually, there's a lot of symbiosis involved in how we define the features in the first place. So it's it's really a kind of, it's kind of a man and machine combo it's not just a sort of a kind of big black balls.
1: Yeah, I, I don't imagine you'd have a single customer if it was, and even if it was, I don't imagine you would say anything other than what you just said. But, but in all seriousness, but in all seriousness, I, I do suspect. You know, obviously, you guys have had to crack that nut because anybody who's going to use your technology for their own lending purposes, which I know is a direction you guys are going in, they would obviously have those questions because they would want to answer them in the same way. So, and and that probably is part of why it might make sense for you guys to stick with certain data domains where things become less black as opposed to let's just mix in everything including their birthday and their yeah. you know the sign they were born under and the weather patterns and now it's really mysterious as to why it said yes or no it's like you come up with very narrow criteria for different kinds of payments different kinds of things so that you can understand the the yes or no decisions Absolutely. Um, and, and be able to kind of discern that stuff right now the interesting dynamic i'll end on this point i'd love your thoughts here we look at things like insurance underwriting, loan underwriting. I don't care if it's gigantic loans or tiny loans like what we're talking about today. And we actually think that the the big upside for all of this really is winning new business, business that we would have not said yes to. Maybe emerging yeah. markets, maybe younger people, maybe people that are near prime, whatever the case may be. There's entire markets that could be, if we lent them a dollar, they could be worth a dollar one or a dollar five. And we're just not even looking at them right now. And the the we, we see the upside of any kind of underwriting as really being opening up new markets. The bigger enterprises, you might or might not be aware of this, are generally looking at these underwriting techs more from a pure kind of risk and efficiency standpoint. How can we kind of tighten things up, batten down the hatches? They're not really looking to open things up and reach into new markets. How long do you think it'll be until, you know, you guys are clearly on the startup side, you're looking at the bigger picture. You're in a space that I'm personally pretty excited about. How long do you think it'll be until the bigger organizations in financial services wake up and say, "What? What? Wait a second! There's whole slices of the pie sitting around. We can't play defense forever against all these startups." Do you think that that wake-up call is is likely to happen at all in the
2: next half decade? It's, it's happening very slowly, and as as is the kind of the way for the very big banks who, who we also yes, away <laughs> everything our, is very our, slow. Yes, in our former <laughs> lives as management consultants, but. You should probably start by saying that that sort of desire to serve the underserved was as much a part of the reason for founding Vintern as as the efficiency and, and you know a credit risk management side. And we often talk about this kind of there. idea that you know, okay, there's some people with a good credit score who who have some adverse information in their transaction data who will say no to. But for each one of those, there's probably I think it's something like seven or eight who have the you know a blemish on their credit score, but are fundamentally okay. But that actually means that you know we are overall in a position to serve a lot more people than would otherwise be served. And I think um, that is the right thing to do for consumers. And I think it will you know in the course of time you know it will become profitable, and the banks will have to follow suit. But realistically, I think we're kind of three or four years away before the big banks are doing that.
1: And I mean, yeah, you mean thinking about new markets that they can actually open up. Mm-hmm. And if they did it, by the way, they would they would put it under the same moral purpose that you're holding up right <laughs> now, obviously, as well, right? They wouldn't say, by golly, there's more money out there, right? They would say, you know, we woke up one morning and I thought of the speech of Martin Luther King and we, bah, bah, bah. you know, of course, they would they would throw the same banner over it. But in either case, I think that it is probably a, a better world if 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 people get credit, if people who deserve to have some access to credit, even if some of their signals are off, can get more of it on a big scale or a small scale. It does seem like a real net benefit, and it's really cool to see this whole space waking up because I think if it makes things more liquid in a way that's aggregately productive, by golly, I mean that that just seems like a good thing. So. It's it's great to be able to get a little bit of a sense, Mark, from your perspective as to how this stuff works under the hood. I know that's all we had for time on this interview, but I sincerely appreciate your perspective and thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thank you.
0: And in wrapping up today's episode, I think it's particularly prescient, whether we see this in consumer lending or insurance, that data is cutting both ways in terms of giving businesses clearer ideas on how their customers navigate financial decision making. On the one hand, we have privacy concerns. And of course, there are great sensitivities. I don't need to explain about legacy financial institutions being able to channel aggregate data about their customers into sweeping conclusions that have great consequence on their financial futures. On the other hand, we're seeing examples of this aggregated data not incentivizing banks and other financial institutions to penalize or raise prices on set categories and behaviors, as has long been the criticism of credit scores. If anything, we're seeing this data open up new markets for banks and lenders that transcend the typical challenges we've been seeing in lending and insurance and and compliance, particularly those challenges that reinforce bias that we know doesn't line up with our real-world experience, no matter what a transaction ledger says. Definitely lots to think about in both financial services and insurance more broadly as the democratization of data opens up over the next few years. On behalf of Daniel and the whole team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.